You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Good morning and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today it's the third Saturday in January, and we normally devote January to the topic of abortion. And we are doing that again, and we'll be doing that again next week. So today we're going to be talking about the issue of abortion. We're going to be talking about more than just the issue of person who does my yeah my guest thinks that that's not the best position to go with we're gonna find out a little bit why about that and come about the idea of a war on women as well maybe abortion really isn't a war on women maybe or maybe it is but it's going the other way around which my guest talking about all this day is john farrell he's got He's an MDiv in the projects of emphasis and languages at SES. At SWBTS, he's got a THM and PhD in philosophy of religion with ethics minor. His dissertation was body ethics, a study about ethical responsibilities into and through our bodies. He's got publishings of a Christian research journal, Salvo Magazine, Christian Projects Journal, Journal of the International Society of Christian Projects, and others. He's debated with Matt Dillahunty of the Atheist Experience, and David Smalley of Dogma Debate. He has teaching experience on uh, my computer just <laughs> just I have a little blip here. He has teaching experience with Texas Wesleyan University in uh, Tarrant County College and Pendigo Christian Academy. He hosts two teaching websites, intelligentchristianfaith.com and abortionhistorymuseum.com. He's currently a teaching fellow with Equal Rights Institute, a pro-life training group in Concord, North Carolina, and he volunteers with Pella Pro-Life and Central College Students for Life. So, Dr. Ferrell, welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. It's good to be here. You know, if my audience doesn't know much about you, tell us about how you got to be doing what you're doing. Well, I used to teach uh, high school Bible uh, college credit classes with Texas Wesleyan University and Pentigo Christian Academy. And these Bible classes were Christian apologetics, ethics, and world religions. Well, that ethics class, about mid-semester, we'd spend a, a, we'd start spending about a week on key ethics issues. And abortion was usually the one I'd start with. Well, I found as I would cover that section year to year, it would just keep getting longer. And I realized that there's more we need to develop there. And I came under the conviction, number one, that I had not been giving this subject the proper focus and and investment that it deserves. Uh, And number two, that 
at least at an academic level, and I know this isn't just an academic issue, but at an academic level, this is the most winnable debate, uh, perhaps the most winnable debate of the, the leading uh, debate topics uh, within apologetics and, and culture. Uh, when it comes to the argumentation that's used in defense of the pro-choice position, uh, it's usually pretty flimsy, pretty presumptuous, and and contraindicated by a lot of the science, a lot of popular understanding. Um, and if we Christians uh, and non-Christians can just be serious about our humanitarian ethic and be serious about human rights, then this is a very winnable argument. Now, that's at an academic level, at a popular cultural and political level, that's a whole different story. But um, at least when it comes to my field of expertise, which is Christian apologetics, philosophy, and theology, uh, this is a pretty open and shut case. So I would take longer and longer to cover that topic. Well, I started doing a little more writing on it, started uh, devoting my speaking engagements to that topic. Uh, I started a website, abortionhistorymuseum.com, so I'd have a repository for some of my research articles. Uh, well, now I am a teaching fellow with Equal Rights Institute, and I've got one formal debate under my belt regarding uh, the, the subject of when uh, human rights begins, uh, and I've got tons of informal debates and a considerable uh, body of literature on the subject, because this is the leading humanitarian crisis of our day. Outside of the simple gospel of Jesus Christ, there's no other issue that's more important from, from what I can tell. Now, who was that former debate, Rich? Uh, it was a, a three-person debate, a panel debate with Dr. Charles Hermes, and Dr. Sally Parker Ryan. Mm -hmm. It was at Texas, uh, I'm sorry, University of Texas Arlington. Uh, you can find it online. Just look up John Ferrer versus uh, Charles Hermes, H-E-R-M-E-S. Mm -hmm. uh, and my name is F-E-R-R-E-R. -E Just look it up. It's on YouTube. Um, I think it was a pretty effective demonstration that uh, the burden of proof is really on the pro-choicers to demonstrate that uh, hum the, the fetal human life is so far beyond the normal rights understood to apply to humans that we are justified, uh, point blank, in passing a death sentence type of policy that kills roughly a million fetal humans each year. Mm -hmm. And that burden of proof uh, hasn't even been... Uh, most pro-choices haven't even come close to disposing of that burden of proof. What they typically try to do is just try to create some doubt with pro-lifers regarding where that line for personhood is. And maybe our conception definition is a little too stringent or something like that. And while they got us arguing, haggling over where that line is, um, there are dozens upon dozens of glaring uh, wrongs that are tied into abortion policy that we're not talking about because we're preoccupied with personhood. Well, personhood is an important issue, and in that debate, um, I think I dignify that point, but I really am careful to avoid getting caught up in the personhood debate so that we can talk about all the other wrongs in abortion choice policy. Mm -hmm. 
And I'm also curious on a more personal note, when were you a student at SES? Let's see, that was 2002 to 2005. I think December 2005 is when I graduated. And okay. I hung out for maybe another, another semester while I was finishing up um, some work with North Rock Hill Church, where I was an associate pastor. And I was also a semester missionary with the North American Mission Board during that time. Okay, so you pretty much already cleared out by the time I showed up. Yeah, but I do remember you from uh, the uh, National Apologetics Conference, probably about 2004 or 2005. Mm -hmm. uh, no, wait, 2003 or 2004, I think I, I remember being in one of the same breakout sessions with you. Um, I think it might have had, had to do with race and Christian culture. But I can't remember who, the name of the speaker, but I remember being impressed with some of the questions you were asking. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. All right. So you're you're thinking the whole thing that whenever they throw out personhood, it's pretty much just a distraction to us? Um, I don't want to commit a reductive fallacy and, that, and say that it's just that. Um, I, I do want to qualify it. First, I think the personhood argument is a solid argument. If mm -hmm. If... Uh, someone was going to go about training uh, uh, boatloads of pro-lifers in one singular effective argument to become experts in and then go release them to have some fruitful discussions and uh, uh, when they're doing tabling or sidewalk counseling and things like that, I think the personhood argument is, is about as good as there is, mm -hmm. depending on how you develop it. I think it needs to be developed well and I think Equal Rights Institute does a great job developing the personhood argument. That said, uh, so much of the pro-life movement <clears throat> has preoccupied on the personhood argument that many of us don't know how to work outside of those categories. We don't know how to set that aside and discuss other things. Uh, letting Just dealing with the unresolved uh, question of when is a human a person? I think a, a human personhood begins at conception, and I think there's a case that it, that can be defended, at least in the eyes of the law, that can be defended on the basis of the Declaration of Independence. But I think so much time gets used up talking about that, that we don't get to ask questions like, should it remain legal to abort a fetal human solely because of their sex or their race or disability. In other words, should uh, fatal forms of racism, sexism, and ableism remain legal in this country? Mm -hmm. Now, that's a provocative question. And I don't have to resolve the personhood issue to show that uh, the typical uh, progressive, liberal, pro-choice person who uh, abhors racism and sexism and ableism, the typical uh, liberal progressive pro-choicer uh, um, is contradicting themselves just by holding to a pro-choice position and letting them try to explain how they think it's okay to have that contradiction. A lot of times they'll step on their own toes and they'll start backing up their pro-choice position saying, well, maybe not that. Maybe we should have some restrictions. Maybe maybe first first trimester. And they start making adjustments and then you have a person who is self-reflective then you can have conversations that might be persuasive. But as long as you start with material that they're prepared for, that they're expecting, 
uh, or that is kind of part of the conventional body of argument, uh, many times they stay in defensive mode and you're dealing with a an irrational person. I'm not saying a dumb person, but I'm talking about someone who has been triggered. Their fight or flight complex is turned on and now you're dealing with someone who is as emotional as they are rational. And oftentimes they're speaking without giving themselves time and vulnerability to think about what they're saying. And I don't want to trigger that. I want to have helpful, fruitful conversations. And one of the ways to do that is to take a pro-choice value and ask them if pro-choice policy lives up to that value. And quite often it doesn't. Yeah, one of the things I also like what you said was about Christians and non-Christians working together because this this is an issue that it'd be easy to say pretty much all non-Christians or even all atheists are pro-abortion, but that's not the case, is it? Oh, it's not. It's not. Uh, there are atheists against abortion, humanists, secularists against abortion. Um, now, as a Christian, I tend to think that the basis for human rights still traces to the same God that Christians worship. But a person doesn't have to acknowledge or even resolve the foundation for those human rights to grant that those human rights exist. And in that sense, uh, an atheist, a skeptic, a non-Christian, uh, agnostic, they can all say, yes, we hold these truths to be self-evident mm -hmm. that all humans are created equal and endowed by their creator, nature, with certain inalienable rights, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. If that's the way they take it from a pro-life perspective, then we're on the same page for 99% of this. Mm -hmm. And we can, we can, you know, break bread over that kind of fellowship right there. You so and, I, I, go, yeah, ahead. go ahead. No, you go ahead. No, you go. No, you. <laughs> hey, well, we, uh, um, I'm thinking about how you just talk about not aborting babies because of sex and such. And mm -hmm. I remember hearing sometime on radio, I remember it was today or some other day, but that China is really suffering from this right now because they had a policy for a while to prevent a population growth that every family could only have one child. And mm -hmm. a lot of parents said, well, a lot of got dads first said, well, I want a son who can carry on my name. So if we see we're getting a girl, abort. And mm -hmm. now there's a lot of guys that are coming of age and there aren't women for them to marry. And some of those uh, people who are raised in a Chinese culture may come over here on a student visa uh, or their business comes over here and they bring their employees uh, and they'll have the same mindset oftentimes. Uh, only one, they've been thinking culturally in terms of small, small family, maybe one child, if that, and if they're going to have a child, it should be a boy. Then marry some American girl if you need to, but let's have a boy. Well, what that means is, is sex-selective abortion happens in America, too. Now, it's not coerced like it is in China. It's not, there's not a policy like China has had. And I, I want to say that China has softened that to where you're now allowed to have more than one child, but uh, you pay a fine or you, you have to pay some extra service for it because it's considered a luxury of the state to be allowed uh, to birth another human. Well, uh, I should back up and say pro-choice, that is abortion choice advocates, uh, generally are repulsed by China's policy. Uh, pro-choice uh, is not necessarily, in their eyes, 
pro-abortion. They're not saying yay abortion, even though the shout the abortion movement sounds like that. Most people who support the choice uh, to be able to have an abortion, they are uh, uh, they they are re- repulsed. They they find it disgusting that China would tell people that they can only have one child at any point in their past. Now that said, this bleeds over into American culture. This isn't just uh, a them over there type of consideration. This is a us over here kind of consideration too. And when we think in those terms that our our children, our families are entirely our fiat choice to make, then uh, Christians can step in and say, hold on, your family is first and foremost God's. Secondarily, you are a steward of your family, not an owner. And God is is the one who ultimately should have the decision of these these kinds of things. Not you, not even government should be able to to make those ultimate decisions. Um, Now, that said, we as stewards, we should be responsible. We shouldn't be uh, foolhardy about stuff. But uh, I think there's there's at least another person trying to weigh into the conversation about family planning who is largely left out of the conversation, and that's God himself. So if you are over there trying to make an appeal to China, and China is, would be something that we are concerned about population growth, what's going to happen, can we have enough to take care of our children and such, what would you recommend to them besides abortion? Um, well, because it's China, my, my options of recommendations are limited. Uh, I'll say in an ideal scenario, if if I had free reign, I'd say you need you need three things. Uh, you need church, you need uh, Christian families, and you need capitalism. Uh, the birth rate and the poverty rate uh, that is in China, which is an economic disparity thing, where you do have a lot of haves versus have-nots, uh, because you have a controlled market and you have a very uh, authoritarian government that makes sure that that the have-nots never get too uppity and and um, indignant about certain kinds of oppression. Well, in that kind of system, you don't have the the kind of capitalistic freedom where people can produce what they desire at amounts they that they desire and charge what they want. And because people can't do that, um, the, that means that the economy stays artificially constrained. And because the economy is artificially constrained, you end up with more of the cultural uh, results of poverty. That is poverty of mind and poverty of the pocketbook. Uh, And the poverty of mind oftentimes means people uh, go from paycheck to paycheck. They spend money while they got it because they never know how much, how long it'll last. And those kinds of decisions tend to make families very short term. Uh, weaker commitment base uh, tends to tends to uh, restrict and restrain marriages, and and because families are weaker, the local communities are weaker, and because the local communities are weaker, the resultant economy is weaker, and so you end up with at a at a society wide level, you end up with with problems like too much poverty, and then people having children uh, that that they aren't as prepared to take care of, uh, which outside of a human rights tradition like we have in the U.S., their response was coerced abortion. Well, that's not a great response either. So I would say if they had a church to help orient people into a stewardship mindset and not just 
a hedonism or secularism or even scientific type of mindset. They can train people to start thinking, oh, I answer to God for how I take care of my family, how I work uh, at the office, uh, how I talk about my government, uh, how I handle my kids. I respond to God. You need that. And then you need churches. I'm sorry, you need churches to do that so that families can take that uh, and have Christian families. And then you need the capitalistic freedom so that people can have the economic uh, ladder to climb out of poverty. And what you find in societies that are becoming more affluent anyway, they start having fewer babies. Mm-hmm. And economically, they have less poverty. And less poverty oftentimes means smaller families anyway, and you don't have to kill any babies to do that. Mm-hmm. People make more conservative family decisions when they've got the economic luxury to do so. Yeah, but uh, does that take yeah. place in countries that don't have abortion as well? Like what countries? I don't know. I mean, most of most of the world right now, not counting uh, ones where it's done illegally. Uh, you, there, there's a lot of Sharia law countries that that don't have uh, access to abortion, but they they. Res- they are too much the other direction, you might say, with uh, oppressive forms of patriarchy in the form of Sharia law, which which do reflect a lot of what feminism has been reacting against. And so those countries may not have abortion, but they also have spousal abuse. They also have forced abortion, illegal back alley abortions. And um, they also oftentimes have have rape and women have a lot, lot less public and social freedom in those kinds of countries. And so if those are the example, those aren't really giving a great uh, comparison study between, say, the U.S. and, um, you know, Mm -hmm. Saudi Arabia, Uh, because there's too many variables that are different, that it's not a not a good, strong comparison. A better comparison would have been uh, the U.S. versus, say, Ireland, because the U.S., uh, has a pretty liberal abortion choice policy. And up until last year, Ireland uh, prohibited 98% of abortions. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and that was that was significant. So you had uh, two countries that were first world countries, uh, common language, a lot of shared culture. Um, and yet um, what what we found was there weren't a lot of coat hanger abortions going on up there because people with uh, capitalistic freedom, uh, with the heritage of Western culture, uh, were able to make smarter, self-conscientious decisions when it came to family planning so that they didn't have to you know, sneak out of the country and get an abortion. Because mm-hmm. I don't think people are idiots. I think people have uh, a lot of self-awareness and self-interest, which... Uh, a good governmental system can take into consideration instead of treating people like children, like like a nanny would treat cho- treat people. Uh, anyway, I'm starting to rant. Does that answer your question? Yeah. You know, you also talk some about stewardship there. And mm-hmm. I, I think that gets into what your topic of dissertation was on, because it's not just stewardship about of some of our resources. It's also stewardship about bodies, isn't it? Yes, it is. Uh, 
Unfortunately, the, the word stewardship has oftentimes been commandeered by church fundraising programs to pay for uh, the new wing of the sanctuary or a new fellowship hall or something like that. But stewardship as a biblical concept referred to a sub-region. So if you have some lord of the manor, lord of the land, who owned it and managed it, well, he would all, he, and it was typically a he in, in, in old days, uh, would entrust that to people who managed uh, underneath him. Now, they answered to him about how they handled things, but the management included human resources. So that included employees and workers. That included material uh, goods. That included uh, trade prices. That included sales and marketing and advertising and shipping. Uh, it included uh, the household and the homestead and all the material resources that it takes to keep, to keep uh, a home running. All of those things are, are goods and services and products and material worth that the steward was responsible for. And from a biblical perspective, the most basic element of stewardship for us is our very bodies, mm -hmm. uh, because we do not even own ourselves from a Christian perspective. God owns us, and we need to answer to God in how we treat our bodies. And so that's why we should you know, have at least uh, moderately healthy diets. That's why we should exercise and take care of ourselves, uh, practice good ment mental health exercises and uh, various different things so that our bodies are themselves a gift we offer back to God. And he can say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Yeah, I, I certainly think that could be a shock to a lot of Christians. Is I, I remember, for instance, being... I'm a part of a number of marriage groups on Facebook and such. One was with this the lady who runs the group asking a question for anonymous wife. Why do you like certain aspects of your wife's anatomy and such? <laughs> and one of the things I said is, look, this is important because we are material beings. Jesus mm -hmm. came and lived in a body that he got calluses on his fingers probably as a carpenter or anything else yep. and the body is not irrelevant to Christians and for us guys we are drawn to our wives bodies because ultimately that's how he made us and that's nothing mm -hmm. to be ashamed of exactly. and so if you deny the body as something good and true and beautiful you're actually going against Christianity exactly the the Christian uh, concept of the body, like how we understand our body, is very different from the autonomy model that focuses on choice and opportunity to the neglect of responsibility. Mm -hmm. uh, from a Christian stewardship per, uh, perspective, uh, yes, we have choice. Yes, we have liberty. But that liberty has, has boundaries uh, so we don't slip into anarchy. Mm -hmm. We have liberty in how we use our bodies to God's glory. But we don't have liberty that is a moral freedom uh, to treat our bodies in a debasing, mm -hmm. uh, disgusting way. Uh, that's not something we have moral permission to do. Now we can, we're physically able to do that, uh, but that's not how we should treat our bodies. So that classic argument for the pro-choice position, my body, my choice, um, Christians can say, uh, at least when the person shares a Christian background, because about 40% of, of women who, who get abortions, if I remember correctly, I think it's 40%, but I, I can check on that. About 40% of women who get abortions proclaim Christianity. And so when you're in 
sidewalk counseling situations with that kind of person. We can say, what do you think uh, God sees, or what do you think God's view is about your body? Is it your choice uh, and your body, or is it God's body that you are to care for? Mm-hmm. And so that that's a different paradigm, and it's not how many of us think. It it sounds oppressive and like like some uh, overbearing misogynistic patriarchy or something like that. When people from a a feminist indoctrinated worldview hear that, but what we're talking about is actually pretty common sense. No one is an island. Mm-hmm. A father is is you might say quote unquote owned in part by his whole family. They all have a say on what he does. If he goes and gets drunk, that bears upon the family. If he goes and gets gets himself really out of shape and uh, sets himself up for an early heart attack, that hurts the family. If a mother uh, treats her body like there's no constraints, no responsibilities whatsoever regarding her body, and she goes and, and uh, has consensual sex, uh, before she's married and in no kind of situation to raise a baby, then she's making decisions that bear upon other human beings. And biologically, there's no debate about whether fetal humans are indeed homo sapiens. And as such, I think that is sufficient grounds for a prima facie belief that uh, the fetal human is a rights-bearing individual. Now, we don't have to know that with certainty for it to still be a, a functioning uh, legally serviceable and morally responsible way to go about our ethics, saying, let's treat all humans as having human rights until it's been proven that certain humans don't qualify, proven beyond a reasonable doubt. And so when it comes to a mother making decisions about her body, when she is pregnant, she's already a mother with child. Mm-hmm. It's not a question of whether it's going to be a child or whether it's going to be a human or a maybe baby, as as it's sometimes said. No, it's a it's... A human child, a legal term for that that child in utero is just that, a child in utero, not a tumor, not a clump of cells, not a snot wad, not just a sperm. It's a uh, biological human organism, a literal homo sapiens in the earliest stage of human development. And so when she's got that human inside of her, her decisions the way she treats her body, her actions, her behavior bears upon other human beings. And that has always been the natural and normal constraint on legal autonomy. When my right to swing my fist uh, ends is at your nose. Mm-hmm. When one human's freedom interferes and constrains and harms and even fatally destroys another human, then that autonomy is bounded. It's limited. And that's a normal understanding throughout our legal history, uh, throughout medical ethics, uh, throughout uh, bioethics. And it should be the standard when it comes to abortion. But unfortunately, many people have been indoctrinated into into such a non-humanitarian worldview that they they can't even think of those categories without Mm. uh, getting emotionally worked up. Yeah, I remember... Someone once told me, if I encounter a woman considering abortion, says like, I'm not ready to be a mother. I say, you already are a mother. It's just going to be your choice if you want to be a mother of a living kid or a dead one. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's a harsh way to say it. Yeah. Um, let, let's. I, I should probably uh, qualify things a little bit. Um, I'm a guy. I got a beard. I don't have any kids. Yeah. Uh, I am married. Uh, 
I, there's no prospective scenario where I'm going to be pregnant. Mm-hmm. I will never have to deal with pregnancy. I get it. I understand that that my emotional, psychological investment is different because this is never going to be something that directly affects me. But that said, abortion abortion affects everyone, at least indirectly. Mm-hmm. And because we're humans, we have a right to have a vested interest and a a sharp and and deliberate voice when it comes to speaking about r- human rights issues. And because of the the scale and scope of abortion, where uh, about sixty one million fetal humans have been killed in the U.S. Uh, through elective abortion just since nineteen seventy three, that scope is absolutely enormous. We can't we can't picture it. And so to think that humans don't have a right to speak into something of that magnitude is is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Now, we do, however, uh, we should, however, be honest that, yes, I don't have the same vested uh, emotional, psychological uh, risk at stake here as as a typical young woman would have. I get that. And I don't presume to know what it feels like to be pregnant. I don't presume to know what it feels like to go through an abortion. And when it comes to uh, pro-life apologetics at the street level, when actually talking with people, we have to be super careful in how we make these kinds of claims um, because there, there's already a, a trust disparity. Mm-hmm. We want them to trust what we're saying, but we haven't yet shown ourselves to be friends that they can trust yet. And so it's really important for us to make sure that they see and that they know that we want what's best for them. And for all people, not just what's convenient, not just what suits my religious worldview or something like that. It's important for us to say, hey, I, w- I don't want you to have to deal with the grief and the guilt and the shame that, that often comes with abortion. I don't want you to have to be another exploitation statistic where another woman uh, was left high and dry by another irresponsible male who loved them and left them. I don't want that to be your story. I want you to have a story of success. I want to help you and, and provide resources so that you can make the, the life decision here, the decision that you, you very likely will regret that abortion decision uh, in phases later in life. But if you choose to have that baby and you give that, that child up for adoption, you will never regret having gone through that process so that child can live. You, you will always have a point of pride and hope because that difficult situation you came from, you absorbed the hardship and didn't pass it on to the innocent victim in your belly. When you were talking about the whole thing about the ethics of how we treat our body and such, it was just occurring to me that this is the kind of thing, sadly, we don't usually hear about in our churches, that we have so much self-help stuff and such, and yet... This topic is uncovered, and sadly, it's one that should be probably one of the most covered ones because it's so much practically everyone is struggling with on some end. So uh, you're talking about body ethics or body ethics as it ties into abortion or abortion? which All of them. Body ethics, okay. period. But this isn't talked about. Yeah, I, I agree. I th- There's a couple risks that we run in church. Uh, One is to be so earthly minded that we're not any heavenly good. Uh, Another is to be so heavenly minded that we're not any earthly good. 
Uh, but I think the biblical balance is that we're so heavenly minded and so earthly minded that we're good at both. Mm-hmm. Uh, that biblically, it's important for us to not uh, segment the body and soul like they're two separate things. And like, I'm just this soul that happens to inhabit a body. No, we are a soul body union. And so if, if you came up here and you said, John, I don't like you, and you punched me in the shoulder, I would say, ouch. I don't know. You might have a, have a, have a stiff right hook. Uh, I would say, ouch. But then I would say, why did you punch me? I wouldn't say, why did you punch the shoulder of this body I inhabit? That's just so weird. That's not how we think. And that's not what we believe about ourselves. Ourselves are a soul-body union. We've got this immaterial part and this material part, which even if you never resolve how they interrelate, somehow they do. And biblically, God saw fit to uh, create the physical world, embodied humans. He saw fit to rescue embodied humans from their sin and not, not just, you know, zap their souls up and let the bodies fall to the ground. Uh, he rescued humans in their bodily form and, and created a way of salvation while they're still physical. He has a plan to redeem all of uh, the physical creation. Uh, creation groans, longing for the day uh, when Christ returns. All, all of creation, not just people. Uh, and God also saw fit uh, to send his son, uh, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, uh, born of a virgin, and I affirm the virgin birth. I also affirm the virgin birth. <laughs> Good. Uh, sent him in bodily form. Uh, to save people and minister to people in their bodily forms, and then to uh, lead, and then to lead the way in being resurrected in bodily form, so that people, the rest of us, could also be resurrected in bodily form, just as he was the first fruits of the resurrection. And so God's really concerned about dignifying the body. It only makes good sense that if we're trying to share the thoughts of God and become more godly, that we'll share some of the values of God, and that includes stewardship of the body. Mm-hmm. Now, applying that to the abortion issue, um, not only do we do we risk um, leaving people disempowered and handicapped when it comes to the worldview behind abortion, but when we don't teach a godly and biblical understanding of the body, um, we're leaving a lot of value uh, still on the table and walking away. Mm-hmm. We're leaving a lot of the biblical uh, earthiness of, of Scripture, we're leaving it untouched so we can talk about spiritualized things, uh, when instead God's giving us counsel on how this stuff works into and through our bodies and how we're embodied beings, and that's a good thing. So I think the abortion issue is just one of the, the leading examples uh, of what happens when we as a Christian church haven't been training people up to see their bodies as God sees them, which is uh, stewardship resources, that the gifts of God to devote to his glory. Not, um, how can I say it? Um, uh, a fun house just to exploit for human pleasure uh, till we till we die. Yeah, I, I'm reminded. God wants us to have joy, not just fun. Yeah, I'm reminded of how uh, a few days or so ago, and I were heading home from an event, and I started talking to some about church history and such. Mm-hmm. And I'd said, you know, 
early on in church history, there was a strong view against any kind of birth control whatsoever. And it was even thought that the only reason a couple should be having sex together is procreation. And that's it. I said, and so you can search the whole New Testament and you won't find that view anywhere in there. It doesn't Agreed. exist. And she said, well, isn't that usually the common Protestant worldview? I said, why on earth would you think that? Because most marriage groups I know nowadays, I mean, I could be wrong statistically, but most ones I encounter are run by Protestants. And I said, well, I just remember when I was growing up in church, everything was talked about in a negative sense. Mm-hmm. And yeah. sadly, she's probably right with that. There definitely are are some different trends across church history and today. Um, and, and just to get some context there, um, just kind of uh, mind warp back into first century a little bit, first century Rome, uh, Jerusalem. Yeah. And, and think about what kind of sexual indiscretions, perversions, uh, and just wickedness were uh, were perpetuated under a, a quote, pagan understanding of sexuality. Um, they, they had cult prostitution, temple prostitution, um, their uh, flagrant open homosexual practice, oftentimes pedophilic. Uh, so that included molestation, uh, grooming slaves that were purchased explicitly for the, for the purpose of homosexual molestation. Uh, you had you had uh, um, just uh, prostitution. Uh, you oftentimes had um, uh, oppressive uh, forces such as Roman soldiers who kind of did what they want as long as they could get away with it because they're the rulers, they're in charge. And so, with that uh, that baggage tied to the notion of sex, it kind of makes sense why some people had such a negative understanding of sex. And they treated it as a means to end, and a means to an end, and and to be used n- no more than that. Um, in w- there's a there's one way that notion can be salvaged in the same way that someone could say, uh, I won't drink. I come from a family of alcoholics, so I'm not drinking. Now, a person who doesn't drink, uh, they may think that that's that's an absolute rule, and no one's allowed to, and that's excessive. That's denying our Christian liberty. But for that person. Paul said it'd be better not to eat meat than to lead anybody into temptation. Mm-hmm. Although he fully knew that he had that right to eat meat. He had, uh, Paul talks about in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 6 and 7, how we have the right to marry. We're within our rights to marry and to have sex. And if we're burning with passion, then the answer isn't to sleep with your girlfriend. The answer is to get married. And that, that uh, sexual passion that we have um, I think that's a God-ordained gift so that uh, adolescent boys would have the motivation uh, to man up, <laughs> to, to, to get that job, to become marriage material so that they can do something fruitful with all that passion. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's a God-given gift. But when that, that uh, the fire in the fireplace that keeps the whole home warm, when that is taken outside of the home, it becomes a wildfire. And that's what the first century church was aware of. That's what many of them were reacting against. And that's what many of us today can, can relate to. Because there is just as much, if not more, 
uh, sexual perversion, corruption. I mean, internet porn is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Uh, biggest business perhaps in the world right now. Um, you, you can't uh, watch a daytime drama without finding someone who's having sex outside of marriage, uh, who's, who's committing adultery, uh, who's sleeping with their girlfriend, or doing something illicit. Mm-hmm. You, can't, uh, you can't escape it. So I understand that. That said, we can't be led by reaction to abuses. Yeah, uh, because then we'll just be a pendulum swinging back and forth between uh, abuses on both extremes. People who are too austere and won't have any sex ever, and so they're they're setting society up to die from lack of procreation. And then others on another end uh, who are are willy nilly about it, do what you want. Somewhere in the middle, we find a biblical Christian model that that is modest, that is temperate. Uh, but that is still sexually liberated. And studies have shown that women who report the most sexual satisfaction are married women in their 40s. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's, that's because I think God created sex as a fairly delicate thing that uh, is most beautiful and most rewarding when it has the security and safety and the stability and the reliability of two people who aren't just feeling love for each other, but they are covenantally wed to each other. That's a very safe place uh, to have that kind of vulnerability. You have that with a boyfriend, and he might walk away after he's he's uh, after he's had his fun. Yeah, I, I agree about it. I was explaining the same kind of thing to her as well about the way the culture was and such. And you know, I, I bring it up because. I've seen this kind of thing happen way too often in the churches, though, where we give a negative message, and I think it makes people more prone to abortion and sex outside marriage. I mean, the key example I've given is when I was in Bible college, I went to my church once, and they were having a silver ring thing service, mm. and that's kind of like true love waits and such, for all who yeah. don't know. And the, the associate pastor got up to give a talk, and he said, now, I want you to know, if you all have sex before you get married, it's going to be for selfish reasons. And I'm thinking, okay, I can agree with that. He says, here's some things to think about. What if you get pregnant? What if you get an STD? Think about the guilt you have. Think about the shame you could have on a future wedding night. What would you tell your future spouse one day? What would you, will you tell your future children one day? And I'm listening to something. Excuse me, pastor. Those sound like selfish reasons to me as well. And only one sentence or so, I think, was devoted to the joy of sex in marriage. And mm-hmm. I'm seeing the back there in the pews getting bored. And as mm-hmm. I tell people, if you are talking about sex and you have a college-age guy in the audience getting bored, you are doing it wrong. <laughs> Very true. Yeah, um... I want to I want to extend some grace to church leaders, mm-hmm. uh, to parents, to people in instructional positions um, who are trying to find some way to communicate uh, at least a few Christian values as they regard sex uh, relationships, marriage and all that. Um I don't envy the parents who are in that position trying to explain it to kids who every message they're getting elsewhere is running the other way, is telling them, uh, your body's a playground, go have fun. And, and they don't have 
have the balance. They don't have the maturity to understand that choices have consequences, that that um, there's there's layers of meaning involved in what we do with our body. And we can betray some goods and and mortgage joy for the sake of immediate pleasure if we don't have a, a, a godly understanding of our bodies. And so the it's it's tough. It's very difficult to teach the kids, uh, to teach the the next generation, uh, because we're fighting an uphill battle. So much of culture is telling them uh, this autonomy model that that um, we're just radical individuals, not uh, community based, church based, family based uh, participants or members. Uh, but this radical individual model tends to focus on our choice and our interests, uh, consumer driven society. And this is very common in Western culture. But when you take that autonomy model and you multiply it by the power of sex and you've got a lot, a lot of libertinism and a lot of, lot of, um, uh, licentiousness. <clears throat> so, how do we push back against it? I don't have a simple answer, um, but I think it's it's important to do more, uh, as you were getting at, it's important to do more than just scare tactics. Mm -hmm. Scare tactics, uh, there's a place for it. You know, Jesus talked about hell. I mean, hell's a real consequence uh, for people that that um, die out of fellowship with him. That's, that's a big deal. Uh, but it, Jesus didn't only talk about hell. He talked about the love of Christ. He talked about grace. He talked about um, uh, following him. He discussed the sacrifices in this world first. And, and he communicated a, a vision of the kingdom of heaven that is, is so uh, strange and fascinating uh, and deep that it's good for us to have our, our curiosity triggered there, for us to be reaching out and clamoring after something that's that's starting to be here but not fully here yet. And that that what he was doing was was worldview training. He was helping people to think in biblical Christian categories before they even realized who this guy was that was talking. And I think we can be doing that as churches and in our families and in our spheres of influence, help people to think Christianly. Don't just give people a few a few scary uh, numbers about sex before marriage, but help people to think in godly ways uh, so that you're not just uh, giving them a fish, so to speak. You're teaching them how to fish. You're not, not just giving them a lecture on why you shouldn't have sex before marriage, but you're teaching them uh, how to approach sex in a way that, that is fruitful and lifelong. And that brings long-term rewards, that, that is, is a, a blessing to God and participates in your greater meaningfulness within this world and eternity. And you don't have to compromise any of that depth of significance just so you can get your kicks. Instead, uh, you're getting greater kicks because you're, you're investing in long-term rewards. Yeah, it's self-interested, but it's not just self-interested. Mm -hmm. uh, it's uh, yeah. kind of John Piper's Christian hedonism. I hate that term. But it's the same concept he's talking about. Yeah. We are most delighted in in God. Uh, we're uh, when He's most glorified in us. You know, I'd uh, like to tie this up, going together with uh, one of our statement about something you've said, and then one of a claim. You see how all this I've been saying kind of ties together, hopefully, and that's it. I mean, yeah. you talk about how the sex drive was meant to get us men to kind of settle down, as it were, and such. I mean. You and I are both married, 
And let's face it, that not would not. Yeah, let's face it, that would not have happened if there wasn't such a thing as a sex drive for us. Because if there wasn't a desire to have sex with women for us, men would probably never do it at all. They'd never get married because that's, you know, they have to pay more, they have to give up some of their autonomy and things like that and such. It wouldn't be worth it. But because of that drive, you and I both could said, hey, um, I want to enjoy loving this woman. So, yeah, it's totally worth it. Now, mm -hmm. contrast this to, say, a, a guy who wrote, I think his name was Ben Sherman, for a blog on in Texas when a bill was being introduced that would restrict abortions. And why did he say that? men should uh, be out there arguing against the law that would restrict abortions where well, one great reason he gave it, and i was so glad he came out and said it up front your sex life is at stake mm -hmm. i i think the popular view of sex uh is recreational not procreational mm -hmm. um and it's devoid of significance. It's devoid of meaning. It is, it's an attempt to separate sex from its, its richer, more robust context so that you can treat sex as just a casual thing mm -hmm. that, that people do to have fun. Um, now, historically, this is, this is an anomaly uh, worldview or, or uh, perspective. Um, Historically, sex has has always had uh, layers of significance uh, because, as you were talking about, if we didn't have a sex drive, uh, then then what really is there to uh, getting uh, married? Yeah, to to getting married. Uh, why would why would men bother mm -hmm. with with the responsibility of family uh, if there wasn't sex involved? Um, and this this is speaking in very practical terms here. This isn't this isn't highfalutin esoteric theology here. We're talking just at a very practical level. We ha every society has to ask, how are they going to civilize men? How are they going to secure and protect women? And how are they going to raise children? Uh, any society that is going to have any success is going to have to have to find models that work at all three of those those tasks. And, and if they can't because, do that, then they dissolve. This isn't because men are perverts, either. No, no. And that, that's going to the whole toxic masculinity debate, which don't even get me started on that. Uh, but the male sex drive is a good thing. It's like everything about human nature still needs discipline. Uh, and this one perhaps more than others, but it's still, it's still a good thing. Mm -hmm. And when it is harnessed... Uh, as you might say, the, the, the fireplace in, in the home, it, it is a wondrously fruitful, rewarding, and beautiful thing that helps, helps create uh, biochemical bonding between husband and wife. Same for her. She has, she has neurochemicals that are firing uh, whenever she's having sex that are, that are endearing her to the partner. Uh, the man might have a little less, but he still has that going on too. So that sex is a natural means of bonding. It's mm -hmm. it's not only um, shallow and mistaken, but it's outright wrong. The the notion of casual sex. Sex was never meant to be casual. It's mm -hmm. not supposed to be, and it's worse sex if it's just casual, mm -hmm. because you're you're losing uh, the the residual side effects. The 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 additional. Uh, fruitful blessing of sex where you have uh, greater closeness in, in your marriage. 
where you have uh, more intimacy, more bonding, more romance, not just casual sex. And so I, I think understanding the dignity of the male sex drive is really important for the sake of society because um, this is why I think the, the, the bricks that build up to make a society are not individuals, it's families. Because individuals can't procreate, families procreate. Mm -hmm. uh, you have to get two people together and find some way to keep them together to help raise that child. Single parent homes do not have the societal success rate at raising children that traditional family homes do. Uh, plural marriage homes don't either. Uh, uh, no, you said that Gay sex marriage is, homes for that, that matter as well. You said sex is meant to be procreational. And for the most part, I agree, but you know, I think we also know it doesn't mean like every single time you have sex, it's supposed to oh, be yeah, for yeah. procreation. I mean, my wife and I would love to have kids someday. We're not at that point yet, so we, we, we use the pill right now, and, you know, some of that, but I, I definitely agree with you that sex is something beautiful and magical, and there is that great bond there. I mean, if I don't get to be with Allie that much, I keep thinking, okay, something's going wrong here, there's a problem and such, because for me, nothing connects me to all like that, and then mm. with that male drive, once that connection's established... They're like, oh, yeah, I want to go out there and be a much better man than I have been being. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, these these are real needs. Mm -hmm. um, and marriage is a very delicate thing. Uh, my wife and I spent uh, about, I think, three, four months uh, this past summer doing a teaching internship with a relationship uh, development ministry here in town in Pella, Iowa. And... We, we came under the conviction that pretty much every marriage could benefit from some marriage counseling. Instead of say, wait till you're half dead before you go see a doctor, why not treat uh, marriage counseling like the regular exercise and checkup you get so that you don't get sick, so that you don't have relational ailments uh, happen. And the sex drive is one of those those normal needs, just like for a woman to be told that you love her, mm -hmm. uh, to be to to have those those soft moments, those things that communicate intimacy. Those are really important. It's not just a frivolity. That's that's a real substantial thing that men need to take seriously, mm -hmm. and men need to need to feel a sense of respect. They need to know that that the wife appreciates their competence, and and in some ways looks up to to him and and and. He can, he can, how can I put it? Um, men, I, I find oftentimes, can be most heroic when they're being strong for their family, and mm -hmm. especially for their wife. And I think, I don't think that's artificial. I, I don't think that's just accidental. I think that's substantial. That's part of our nature. We're, we're designed uh, to be someone's hero. And when a woman communicates to us that they don't they don't have any need for us that they're fully autonomous individuals uh the the feminist mantra uh, a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle um that's that's an ungodly message now i'm not saying she needs to be some pathetic damsel in distress who can't even tie her own shoelaces but i am talking about a woman who aspires uh to be part of something that's greater than she could accomplish on her own and that's family Watch my Facebook page sometime when someone goes after Allie. I don't know if you've ever seen it, 
But if you ever see it, it is a sight you will never forget at the end. Because I come out and my cross. Yeah. I mean, I've had some people. I always had some people in the military say, "I am scared of your husband." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And by the way, I'd like to give a little shout out for you because when we had Rebecca Valeris on here a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. She yeah. spoke very highly of your wife, who is has an apologetics ministry as well, Mama Bear Apologetics. Yes. And we're hoping sometime in the summer when the book comes out, we're going to have her on the show. Well, I'll ask her. Um, I I won't speak for her at this point. I'd need to know what her schedule looks like and run it by her. But um, that sounds like something she'd be more than happy to be a part of. Right. She, it, it already is. She's put me on the list to get the book. Oh, well, see, there you go. <laughs> but I would like to remind everyone that we talked about Rebecca Valerius being on past week, past two weeks. But if you're listening next week, we've got John Fer- Ferrer on here right now. But if you're listening next week, we're going to have Matthew Flanagan back on the show. He's done a lot of research Great. on abortion in New Zealand. And mm-hmm. so we're going to be talking about how things are down under. And most of us, sadly, in America, we probably really only think about what goes on in America. Instead of realizing, you know, the abortion debate is actually taking place in other places around the world. So we'll be talking with Matthew Flanagan about that. But for now, let's get back to John Ferrer. Hmm. Now, something I want to ask you about also is this uh, abortion history museum. I think some Mm -hmm. people could think the history of abortion, it probably began with Roe v. Wade and such. Hmm. I'm reminded of a... A Peanuts comic strip with uh, Sally buying a paper, and you know how if you saw the strips and such, someone can buy, and mm-hmm. what she's buying shows up on top of this. Says, "I want to write about church history, and it's important to go back to the very beginning. Our pastor was born in 1950. <laughs> so, how, how does abortion history begin? Oh wow, um, the effort to intrude upon pregnancy and artificially halt a human life who is unwanted, uh, that's about as old as humanity. Um, uh, in, in ancient Rome, ancient Greece, uh, those parts of the world, oftentimes the, the mode of abortion, now abortion was prohibited mm. uh, broadly, the, the ethical and legal views of it was that you're not allowed to do it. Uh, but there's, there's different reasoning behind it than what we might expect. Part of the reasoning uh, was that the means of abortion uh, was uh, too primitive and too dangerous to the mother uh, to where it was either unsuccessful and you end up with a child who's been scarred or, or uh, seriously harmed in the process, but now they're born. Uh, or the mother dies in the process. Um, oftentimes they would they would take some uh, uh, do-it-yourself uh, home tonic that is mixed together with something that is poisonous to her so that she goes to the brink of death and the child does die, but she comes back and survives. That was generally the model when it came to elixirs that they'd take to abort the baby. Well, that was that was common enough to where the Hippocratic Oath, which, oh gosh, I can't remember, that's... I want to say fifth uh, or sixth century BC, but it was a long time ago. Uh, the the original Hippocratic Oath forbid uh, medical professionals from administering euthanasia—that is, uh, killing people uh, 
through a supposed mercy killing uh, to end their suffering. Uh, and it also forbid abortion. And it wasn't until I believe 1964 that the Hippocratic Oath, which is what all medical professionals swear by as part of their oath of medical practice, uh, not until about 1964 was that revised to make room for abortion. Now, incidentally, mm. what do you think was going on uh, around 1964 in, that, in U.S. culture? <laughs> that was around the time, the start of a sexual revolution. You had things like Hayden Ashbury and such going on. Exactly. You've, you've got the, the beginnings of the, the wild 60s, the sexual revolution. Uh, and I would contend that the most... <clears throat> Uh, uh, most uh, world-changing, consequential submarine in world history <laughs> was not uh, a nuclear sub or, uh, in Russia. Uh, it was actually a little yellow submarine, a tiny pill we know as birth control pills. When those were introduced to the market in the mid-60s, it changed the way people viewed sex. They didn't see sex as a normal means of becoming pregnant, and they didn't, and everybody already knew that the timing method that was commonly promoted in Catholic circles, who generally oppose uh, contraception anyway, <clears throat> the timing method uh, is, is uh, it's hard to sustain in a way that actually uh, succeeds in, in preventing pregnancy. Yeah, you, know, but, uh, you know, according to a joke, yeah. what the name is for people who practice natural family planning? Parents. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but, but we're talking the height of, of the sexual revolution uh, mm -hmm. would come just a few years after that. Be and the, so it was not an accident that they were rewriting the history of ethics in 1964. They wanted good to be different than it was so that they could excuse a libertine sexual ethic. Love the one you're with. That, that was becoming the mantra because now they didn't want to necessarily settle down and have family because many of them were scared of a nuclear holocaust that was going to end anything, everything anyway. Mm -hmm. And so it was kind of live for the day. Uh, take some drugs, uh, transcend this, this mortal experience, protest Vietnam, listen to some, some uh, this wild far out rock music. And, and just experiment and then become a hippie and then travel around and follow a band and sleep with lots of people. And that model was that the hippie model, the, the free love generation, some of them settled down, but a lot of them just self-destructed. And the others either had to step away from it and abandon that, that way of living to come down to a more civilized model that, that would actually uh, do those three goals for society, which is to domesticate the men, secure the women, and rear the children. Uh, they had to move away from that, that hippie free love model so that they could settle into something that actually had some contribution to the world, some positive contribution. Uh, but I, I skipped over a long period there going from ancient Greece to the 1960s. Uh, but it wasn't until 1973 that, that abortion was formally legalized at a federal level. About 1967, several states had legalized it. Uh, with, with certain caveats, but the, the chief reason it was legalized in 1973 was, I think, ignorance. The people who otherwise might oppose it didn't know enough, uh, didn't understand that you really do have a biological human from conception onward. Now, they had enough of the science 
to know that. It's it's kind of inexcusable that they didn't know, but the fact of the matter was they they still consider that disputable. And in the 1973 Roe v. Roe v. Wade decision, Blackman, uh, who wrote the decision himself, wouldn't call the fetal human a human. He he would call the fetus a potential human. Biologically, that was inept and and pseudoscientific back then, and it's only become more so nowadays since we've only seen more and more reason to recognize that a new biological human has begun from conception onward. And to call that human a potential human is is misleading. And But that's what he had to do to be able to separate human rights from personhood and thus create a new category, a new artificial division between human and person so that biological humans could be denied uh, the legal rights of personhood and it could from then on out become legal to kill an inconvenient human who through no fault of their own as uh, the result of other people's actions. Maybe, maybe, uh, maybe the mother was raped, and that was the, that was the claim in the original Roe v. Wade decision. Uh, but Norma McCorvey, I think that's how to pronounce her name, uh, uh, Jane Roe, she ended up not having an abortion. She had the had the baby, and she admitted after the fact that she lied about having been raped, and that she was put up to it by advocates, uh, overt, top down, astroturf. Uh, advocacy programs trying to get abortion legalized at a federal level. There's a lot of conspiratorial forces at work to try to, that at the time were trying to legalize abortion, and now they're trying to keep it as free and open and, and as accessible as possible. The abortion lobby is huge. So mm -hmm. that kind of catches us up to today. Ancient Greece, uh, through about 1960s, uh, anti-abortion was the norm, but we had a turn uh, in large part predicated by um, uh, contracep pill form contraception. And so by the time you get to the 1970s in one of the most uh, liberal humanitarian societies, people say, oh, abortion just makes sense so that women can be equal with men. But hold on, does a woman need a surgery before she's equal with men? If you really believe in equal human rights, they're equal even before and without any kind of surgery. If a woman needs surgery to become equal with a man, then she's not equal. And that's that's a latent sexism within abortion logic. Yet that's what was what was being touted to help legalize abortion in 1973. And the that lobby to get abortion legalized persists today through groups like Planned Parenthood uh, and hundreds of millions of dollars uh, circulating to try to make sure campaigns succeed for candidates that will that will protect abortion. Just this week, uh, Mayor Cuomo in New York uh, was, was putting his foot down saying uh, pro-lifers aren't welcome here and that abortion should be legal up until birth. And at that point, I mean, this this child could walk walk on its own almost mm -hmm. up until birth. That's ridiculous. And many pro-choicers reject that and consider that inhumane. But that's what a guy like Cuomo has to do to keep the abortion lobby happy so we can keep getting those campaign funds and can make sure he's in office next election, too. Do you that's, think that's how it works nowadays? Do you think some of this tide could be changing well, because I understand more people are becoming pro-life, especially since the pro-choice are seem to have a tendency to kill their own through abortion and such. And we've had Brett Kavanaugh put on the Supreme Court now, and 
if Ruth Bader Ginsburg goes or somebody or someone else, we could have another conservative on the court. And I've even heard the news story that Trump's already said that he will veto any law promoting abortion. Yes. In the uh, uh, March for Life, which just happened yesterday uh, on Capitol Hill, uh, uh, Trump, I think he sent in a pre-recorded message where he said that, that he's going to veto any uh, overt pro-choice uh, expansion bill. Uh, that's significant. That's a big deal. Now, I see signs of hope. I, I rant and rave about uh, abortion choice logic and bad politics and all that. Uh, but there's a lot of signs of hope. Uh, statistically, the numbers for abortion have been uh, declining since about 1990. And they've, they've routinely been, for the last couple of years, just under a million uh, between 900,000 and a million. I, I round off to a million because uh, um, the 61 million or so that have been abort aborted since 1973 averages out to between 1.2 to 1.4 million per year. But technically, uh, the abortions that happened last year were probably just less than a million in the U.S. Uh, that's significant. Now, that's still a million more than we need, uh, than we should have, uh, but that's that does mean tens of thousands of of children that aren't getting aborted um, or pregnancies, unplanned pregnancies that aren't happening. Mm -hmm. Now, what are the causes for these? Uh, I think there's a couple causes. Uh, one is that during the Obama administration, uh, for two years, he had uh, a Democrat House and De Democrat Senate. Then I believe one of the uh, one of the houses of Congress um, became Republican in the next midterm cycle. And then the next uh, next uh, presidential election cycle, it went both Republican-Republican, uh, and the only Democrat uh, office was the head of office, which was Obama. And during that time, from 2000. 12 to 2016, we saw the largest influx of pro-life legislation at a state level that we've ever seen in any other four-year uh, period uh, since Roe v. Wade. That's not a mistake. That, that correlates very closely with the fact that the abortion rates have been, been declining steadily. Um, I think another factor is that since about the mid to late 80s, uh, sonogram technology was introduced and a lot of people who were pro-choice converted overnight to pro-life as soon as they could see inside the mother's belly. Mm -hmm. As soon as they could see inside the womb, they realized, oh, that's why it's so difficult doing this abortion. It's because he's avoiding the, the clamp I'm using. It's because mm -hmm. this thing's pushing against the curette. It's because this thing is responding to me, trying to protect its own life, the most basic uh, instinctive uh, behavior that humans can have. It's trying to protect itself from me trying to kill it. And that's how Bernard Nathanson, uh, one of the leading advocates for the pro-life movement, that's how he came out of pro-choice advocacy and being an actual abortion doctor and became one of the loudest voices for the pro-life movement. Even uh, he's the one who produced that silent scream video that's still to this day one of the most land, uh, uh, landmark uh, statements for the pro-life movement. Well, 
sonogram technology has been improving to where now you've got 4D sonogram technology so that you can, you can see it over time. You can, you can see uh, spatially into there and see the child moving and, and sucking his thumb and giving a high five sometimes, just, just interesting little things. And that just reminds us of how human these fetal humans are. So that helps. But having said all that, perhaps the number one cause behind the decrease in abortions, cell phones. Kids are spending so much time on their cell phones, they're not spending as much time getting hot and bothered in the backseat of cars. Mm, interesting. <clears throat> we have such a rampant cell phone and, and tablet and uh, video games and, and all sorts of screens. We have such a rampant screen addiction that we aren't socializing as much. And so some of, the, some of the oopsies, you might say, that would have happened in the past, uh, kids are either talking themselves out of it because they've got less free time in the day and they're less likely to get themselves uh, in that kind of situation if they've got less time to do it, less boredom. Uh, but on top of that, I think the millennial generation, uh, I, I think we're pulling against the trend. I think many of us just aren't sharing the convictions of, of our parents' generation. Many of us, uh, we see the effects of abortion. We see what happens when that, that daughter finds out that she should have had an older brother, but he was, an, he was aborted. They see the divorce rate. They see the broken homes. They see the trust issues that women have when they were abandoned by a boyfriend uh, after he found out she had an abortion. They see all of the, the softer issues that are hard to quantify in formal statistics, but nonetheless, it happened to them. It happened to their family. And so many millennials are recognizing, hey, there's a good chunk of us that aren't here today because they were aborted a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Combine that with cell phones and, and internet technology where we have as much information as we do about life and, and abortion. And combine that with sonogram technology and combine – oh, I forgot another point. Honestly, I think most pro-choice people are pro-lifers who want to come out. Mm-hmm. I think the instinct to protect life – is more, more innate, more ingrained than the instinct to choose abortion. Mm-hmm. And, and I think a lot of people, if they just felt like pro-lifers weren't dweebs, weren't weird, weren't part of some right-wing cult, if they could, if they could just see that, hey, pro-life is the norm. This is how humanitarian, decent people act. It's hard, yeah. But we'll come alongside of you and lend our strength, lend our support, so you don't have to choose uh, against the life of your most precious gift, which is your child. And you don't have to treat that human being like a burden. You can treat them like an opportunity, like a blessing. And and if you still don't have the the means, the resources, the support, uh, the the psychological health, whatever, if you don't have the capacity to raise a child, we'll help you. Give that child up for adoption. We'll vouch for you at work so they don't don't fire you. Uh, we'll we'll give you a phone number to some legal counsel so you can know your rights so that you don't get fired just because you're pregnant. You know these are the kinds of ways we can come alongside of people and at an individual and family level show them that 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 instinct to protect life instead of kill it that's the right thing to do and we'll help you to do the right thing. 
Yeah, I've actually never seen the Silent Scream video. It's mm -hmm. not because I don't support it and such. I mean, if it, it, it works, it's great, but I'm going to say if I go to a doctor's office, I can't even look if I'm getting a <laughs> shot myself. I don't think there's any way I could handle watching the Silent Scream. I, I don't. I, I'm a somewhat traditional man in the sense that, that I tend to keep my emotions kind of contained. I'm reserved mm. about them. Um, but man, it tears me up to watch anything uh, regarding the like a, the products of abortion uh, mm. or watching a live abortion or uh, mm. recorded. Uh, Silent Scream, I, I have a hard time watching any of those videos because it breaks my heart. And I can't imagine, I mean, it, something at a, at a visceral level, I'm just shocked that a person would support abortion. I have to ask them sometimes, do you know what an abortion is? I mean, do mm -hmm. you mind if I, I ask you to kind of describe what you think goes on in an abortion? And most of the time, pro-choice people have never thought that deeply about it. Because if they did, they'd find it reprehensible. And many times I don't even have to go into this, you know, elaborate, complicated pro-life apologetic. Uh, when I have that opportunity to converse with the person, number one, I'm conscious about trust. I'm trying to earn trust, trying to show that I care, demonstrate it, mm -hmm. find ways to come alongside them and say, hey, let's journey together to try to make the right decision here and, and, and put myself forward as a minister and a servant, not as some lecturer. And, and that that sometimes means I'm not asking those punchy questions uh, about, do you think um, race-based abortion should remain legal in this country? Do you think it should remain legal that a child born from a botched abortion should be legally left to die from neglect on the counter? Do you think that should be allowed in the U.S.? Those are good questions, but oftentimes um, the conversation doesn't go there. The conversation just needs to be, um, why do you support abortion? And what do you think uh, abortion choice. Why do you support abortion choice? What do you think goes on in abortion? And do you want to know if you're going to support it? Do you want to know what's involved in it? Uh, and then I, I try to take them to some, some, uh, very gentle images that, that are not, not live images or anything like that. Uh, but are, are sort of, uh, animations that reenact what an abortion is, but they clean it up. So you're not looking at a lot of blood. Um, and once you see what an abortion really looks like, what do you think of abortion now? Do you think it should remain legal uh, up till birth in the U.S.? And many times they say, no, I think it should be stopped in first trimester. By second trimester, that's obviously a baby. No, 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 no. It's, it's pushing back against the, the clamp. Ooh, really? It squirms like that? Ooh, I didn't realize the head was so, oh, man. And once they realize what's going on in abortion, many of them, their conscience is pricked because they can finally be honest with themselves. They, they can finally admit, oh, they were telling me it was just an amorphous blob. They were telling me it was just a clump of tissues. They didn't tell me it had fingernails that early. They didn't tell me that it's got the neurochemistry potentially to feel pain somewhere between 8 and 20 weeks. They didn't tell me that. Mm -hmm. And now they realize they've been lied to. And so I find oftentimes when you can help a, a pro-choice person uh, avoid the euphemisms and say what abortion is, their own conscience is their leading means of persuasion. And you don't have to convince them on the spot and change their mind on the spot. You're just create. You're uh, as um, 
as it's been said, you're putting a pedal in their shoe. You're creating a little, you were gonna, little bit of doubt there. I thought you were going to quote Greg Coco there. That's usually what happens. That's it. Yeah, Greg Coco. Yeah, I'd like to uh, remind everyone at this point, you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast, and everything we do here is done with the support of people like you. Ordinary people out there, you know, you got an interest in the project, you got an interest in defending the faith, and you want to learn how to do it. And you come here because you know you're going to get the very best information here. And that I do a lot of reading and research and such to find you the best people that I can. And that requires your help, really. I, I really need your support here. And if you are participating in this and enjoying the fruits of the ministry, why not help keep it going? You do that by going to my website, deeperwatersapologetics.com. There's a link on the side that says, Help Support the Work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. Now, you click on that link, and you get taken to the Ministry of Risen Jesus. You, you're still in the right place. Those are my in-laws, Mike and Debbie Lacona. You make your donation, and it is tax-deductible. You get in touch with me. Or Mike, or Debbie, or my wife, Allie, and say, hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. We will get that donation. It will be tax deductible. You can also go to the e-store get and buy e-books that I have either written or co-written. Um, co-written is a, a creed for the ages, the Apostles' Creed in today's Christian. Co-written include books like Defining Inerrancy and Contextualizing Inerrancy, God and Natural Disasters, Groundless, Christian Answers, Fifth Generations Questions, and of course also the Mentionables Project. And we've got another Mentionables book that we hope to start working on sometime soon. And guys, there's another great way you can support us. Jewelry. Now, I'm not sure if you guys have noticed it, but the women out there, they tend to like jewelry. They, they really do me. John, does Hillary like the jewelry? She likes a little bit. Well, guys, how would you like to get something special for the ladies that you know, and at the same time, support a ministry? Well, you can do that with us. Go to the jewelry store there, and you can buy a piece of jewelry from a lady in your life, and whatever you purchase at price, 25% of it goes to deeper waters, wherever it is. So guys, you know the saying, the piece of wisdom that I've always given you. You can buy something special for that lady in your life to make up that screw-up that you recently did with her. <laughs> or you can buy something special for that lady in your life to make up that screw-up that I know you're going to make with her. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you speak from, ex you listen from experience, don't you? <laughs> uh, yeah... <laughs> now, now, if uh, you can't do any of these, please uh, go on uh, iTunes and leave a positive review of the Deeper Waters podcast. Guys, I love to see it. it. It brings me so much joy when I see how much you all like the show and such. Uh, leave, leave feedback. Share it with friends out there. Get the word going. Such. Now, um, John, Dr. Ferrer, do you have a... Uh, an organization or a ministry you'd like to see people donate to? Uh, Equal Rights Institute is a great 
place to direct funds. The Ministry of Equal Rights Institute, they, they are not uh, Christian-based, although there's a lot of Christians on staff and, and a lot of um, uh, agreement with Christian ideals. Uh, but it's a pro-life organization that is dedicated to equipping people to have uh, fruitful conversations about abortion. Uh, so they're training people to have uh, tabling events uh, at schools and communities. They're equipping people to have sidewalk counseling conversations. Um, uh, Josh Brom, the president, uh, he describes his his uh, organization's goal as teaching pro-lifers how not to be weird. Mm. And it, it's it's a funny but but true sentiment because oftentimes we you know as a pro lifer I study this stuff I'm I'm excited about this stuff I'm eager to have those kinds of conversations because this to me seems like the most um, well I say seems like I think it's demonstrably the most obvious human rights crime uh, in world history and it's happening right under our noses and so it's hard not to get passionate about it but the person I'm talking with might not have put two thoughts into this subject. And so mm -hmm. it's easy for me to come off as weird and, and excessive and, and pushy if I haven't uh, taken some time to kind of uh, develop my method, develop my conversational skills, to, to refine my approach uh, so that my heart, the, the concern I have for other people, for humankind, uh, for this person in particular, I want that to, to show through. And equal rights... Institute does that. They equip people to to let their pro-life heart communicate effectively and persuasively uh, in, in skilled words and good questions and great mm -hmm. conversations. Well, I, I hope that's practically understood because I consider it one of my virtues, but I'm consistently weird. <laughs> uh, weird is just misunderstood awesomeness. Uh, yes, yes, I, I, I can go with that one. <laughs> now, when uh, Roe v. Wade was decided around 1973, you talked, besides that Steve Epps since then, it did leave me wondering, even if we were to jump into a Wayback Machine and go look back then, was the scientific evidence on our side then or not? Well, let's, let's be clear that science doesn't say what's good or bad. Science is right. morally neutral. It's not a value-finding activity. It's a fact-finding activity. Now, I think values are kinds of facts, but science deals with natural facts, how things happen to be. Science has never once said what morally should be or shouldn't be. Science doesn't do that. That's not the field of science. And contrary Sam to Harris what, to the contrary to, to what Sam Harris says, uh, and in keeping with what most everybody trying to uh, shut them up about it is, is saying uh, science doesn't deal, deal with that. What science can do is it can inform our conversation when we're trying to make value statements and do philosophy or do politics and law regarding uh, human life, human rights, uh, civil rights, and things like that. Science can give us good information so we know uh, what what we're dealing with when we when we say a human being, when we say a person, when we say things like that. In 1973, it was uh, already the standard uh, understanding that a fetal human 
or I should say a biological human, because it's not a fetus yet, it's a zygote. Fetus is a later stage, um, begins at conception. That is the fertilization point where sperm and egg mingle DNA and you've got a new biological organism. Even at the single cell stage, you've got a, a human organism at their earliest stage of development that will stay the same living organism from then till the geriatric ward in the nursing home. That, mm -hmm. that thing, at no point in its development does it die and become replaced with another thing. It's, it has numerical continuity. It's the same single being, even when it's changing from one cell to multiple cells. Uh, at that one-celled stage, it has uh, little organelles inside that are functioning like a very sophisticated factory. Uh, it's, it would be a marvel. If we found something like that on Mars, uh, scientists would be celebrating that they found life on Mars. There would be no debate whatsoever about whether that's a living organism. But because it happens in the heart, in the caverns of some very dark pol sociopolitical uh, opinions, people will question whether that's a life. But there's no biological question about whether that is a homo sapiens uh, at its earliest stage. So science from 1973 already was, was establishing that view. Now, it wasn't as wide a consensus. It was still the, the majority consensus view, but it's only been, been uh, verified even more since then. So that any time you run into someone who says, oh, science doesn't tell us when life begins, I would ask them for their source on that. I would ask them mm -hmm. to prove it. I would ask them to show me why I should believe that because uh, this person says it. But I can't find any textbook in fetology, embryology, or human biology that, that supports what this person's saying. Every one of them affirmed that a new human organism, not a clump of cells, not, not uh, undifferentiated mass, not a parasite. Parasites are different species, by the way. So the child in utero is never a parasite. A parasite would be like if you had some some uh, uh, bacteria infection. That's that's a parasitic type of relation. But a child, that's a natural relation. That's where it should be. That's that's where that that human being has been invited to to grow and develop uh, when they're in the womb. So in '73 we knew that. Now we know even more about all the details of what's going on. We've got uh, very, very sophisticated technology that can show us what's going on uh, even at conception. And there's even a, a spark. This is really fascinating, but, but when the, the mother and father's DNA complete at fertilization, there's a literal spark. It's, it's an energy that, that you, can, you can capture on camera and it has been captured. It's fascinating. But that's the kind of thing, that's the kind of detail we wouldn't have had in 1973. But there's not really new information that we're getting from 1973. We're just corroborating what we already knew back then with more and more studies and, and more uh, widely spread consensus on the matter. So in summary, and it should, there should be no doubt about it, we know beyond a reasonable doubt uh, the moment when an individual biological human organism begins, a human life, and that's at conception, when the mother's and the father's DNA mix, when sperm meets egg and you've got a zygote. 
That's what we know. Anyone who is advocating for abortion as a choice is advocating for the knowing, deliberate destruction of a human life. To call abortion terminating a pregnancy, I think, is horribly misleading because childbirth terminates a pregnancy. And if your definition of abortion is indistinguishable from childbirth, then you need a new definition. Mm. Yeah, I've uh, said before that I, I think, honestly, if abortion didn't have anything to do with sex, everyone would automatically decry it immediately. Yeah, I think you're, you're um, scratching at the elephant in the living room. People recognize mm -hmm. when, they, when they're really pressed. They say it's about my body, my rights, but I think the real fire uh, underneath the, the pro-choice lobby is sexual license. People mm -hmm. want to make sure sex is fully divided from any procreational responsibilities that might normally occur. And because as long as it's fully divided, they can keep trying to indoctrinate people into the, the notion of casual sex, free love, uh, hookup culture, and whatever you want to call it. It's, it's a libertine view of sex where people are basically hedonists, um, which the irony of it is this is a subhuman view of humanity. This treats us as, as uh, more animal-like than, than distinctly human. Um, a great book on this, I, I don't know that I could develop it as well as, as it's developed in the book Love Thy Body by Nancy Piercy. I highly recommend that for people. She talks about how uh, oftentimes the humanistic and hedonistic, that is a pleasure ethic, how those popular conceptions uh, of humanity and, and ethics, those end up degrading human beings, treating us as less valuable than we really are. And, and the irony of it is the worldview that is often under attack, which is a broadly Christian worldview, uh, has a higher view of the human body, has a higher view of sex, has a more noble, uh, more, more um, uh, pleasure-empowering worldview because we uh, want people to qualify for those long-term pleasures that they might otherwise uh, marginalize and compromise because they mortgaged away their joy for the sake of immediate pleasure. We want people to know what it feels like uh, to watch their child graduate from college and later walk down the aisle and 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 get married and, and have kids. We want people to know those kinds of pleasures. But those are long-term pleasures that you don't get if you're preoccupied with, with this life now and my life unto myself for my own interest. If that's how you live, then you're going to miss out on a lot of joy in life. Well, since you recommended the book, I believe it was last year in this month in January, we had Nancy Piercy on <laughs> our show talking about the book Love Thy Body. Great so if book. you can't go out and buy the book, which I think you should, at least go and listen to the podcast here <laughs> and see what it says. Now, something I'd like to you comment on as well is that one of the things you talk about is the yeah, idea, you talk about what you emailed me about the war on women, mm -hmm. as it were, and some people think those who are opposed to abortion are engaging in a war on women, because obviously, Dr. Ray, I mean, you and I, we want our wives to be barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen making us sandwiches. Oh, for right? sure. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I want them to shave their legs every day. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, always, always wear an apron when I come home, you know, those kinds of things. No, th those are ridiculous caricatures of, of what the pro-life movement really is. The pro-life movement is, uh, has lots of different faces to it. Uh, New Wave feminists, for example, are feminists and they're pro-life. Um, mm -hmm. There are a lot of secular, uh, atheist, humanistic uh, uh, worldview people who are pro-life because they recognize how we treat the, the most defenseless among us reflects on us as a society. And they don't think it's appropriate to let, say, a father's indiscretions or a mother's accidents uh, spell the, the fatal demise of an innocent child in utero. Mm. Um, and so there's, there's different faces. Now, a lot of the pro-life movement does fit the mold of a, a, um, evangelical Protestant Christian conservative. Uh, there's strong factions within the Catholic church, uh, that are anti-abortion and pro-life. Um, let's see, what was the question? I'm losing it. I felt like I was backing up too much to qualify. It's about the, the war on women. Yes, war on women. Such. Yeah, I gave a talk on the war on women. I called it Unwaging the War on Women and delivered it at the Bible and Beer Consortium in Dallas, which is a great organization uh, mm -hmm. pioneered by a guy named Ezra Boggs. I strongly recommend people to go go check out some of the videos. And if you're in the Dallas-Fort Worth area in Texas, uh, when they've got a talk going on, uh, show up. It's a, it's a pretty interesting experience. Uh, lots of atheists and, and lots of Christians mingled together over a beer or a cigar, which I don't do either. Um, but, you know, it, it creates a venue where people have meaningful theological discussions. And I delivered one on the war on women. And it was called Unwaging the War on Women because I was talking about how the, the leading prospect, or, or how can I put it? Uh, one of the leading rally cries in the 2012 uh, presidential election, which that was Obama, if I'm correct, that was Obama... Uh, and Mitt and Romney. Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney. The, uh, the Democratic National Convention was printing up posters and bumper stickers and trying to, to get this rally cry going called Stop the Republican War on Women. And no surprise, their definition of war on women was uh, demanding women pay for their own contraception and uh, opposing abortion choice. Now, does that constitute a war on women? And I was critiquing that concept. I think that's an insult to women to say that they are primarily defined as the Democrat platform seems to treat them. They're primarily defined by their lady parts and not mm -hmm. by their, their whole selves, not by their maternity, not by, by their, their uh, various different ways that they contribute uniquely in society, regardless of whatever views a person has about libertine sex, sexuality. Not every woman holds to that. And frankly, mm -hmm. if the modern uh, progressive feminist uh, movement were to win out, that would disempower and handicap a lot of women who are perfectly happy being moms and wives and having reasonably traditional homes. And they've got a part-time job or even full-time job, but they're not trying to blame men for all that's wrong in the world. And they don't really believe in that libertine sexual ethic. They think that's actually more harmful than beneficial for women. Mm -hmm. And so I think when we really press that rhetoric, that war on women rhetoric, what we find is many times it's a distraction from actual violence against women.
Mm -hmm. uh, the, the Stop the Republican War on Women had nothing to do with actual violence such as uh, spousal abuse, rape, Sharia law. They're not going to bring up Sharia law and and the, the second-class citizenship status that ascribes to women because if they mention Sharia law and little pockets of Sharia communities in the U.S., um, if they brought that up, that would marginal that would uh, hurt their standing among uh, supposedly marginalized groups, namely Muslim Americans. And so they wouldn't dare bring that up, even though a lot of Muslims themselves think that that's reprehensible. And mm -hmm. to talk more about, say, honor killings and and forced marriages and things like that, those could be considered a kind of war on women. And when we press that rhetoric further, what we find is not only does it insult and demean women, saying you're primarily, uh, your, your greatest uh, dignity as a woman is the ability to kill your child before it's born, that's not a dignity to, to, to women. That, that is, is a certain definition of motherhood that, that treats children like a burden, like, like, a, like, a, like not like a responsibility, but like baggage, like punishment. And that insults family, that insults motherhood, and that insults mothers who don't agree with that. And we can press it even further and find that that rhetoric uh, hides the fact that abortion culture empowers the exploitation of women. Abortion uh, culture empowers the exploitation of women. Now, I'm not saying that Planned Parenthood uh, is encouraging pimps to go out and and uh, find women and kidnap them and force them into sex trafficking. I'm not saying Planned Parenthood is encouraging that. It is empowering people who are using the system to continue to subjugate and exploit women and keep them less empowered by the, the strengths of maternity, the strengths of childbearing. Uh, so no, 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 that's a burden. You don't want that. So for example, a boy uh, has sex with a girl, talks her into it, uh, kind of against her, her best best wishes, but you know he's, he's pushy and she finally gives in. So technically it's consensual, but... Uh, for all practical purposes, it wasn't consensual, uh, but it wasn't technically rape. And so she feels ashamed, embarrassed. She wished she hasn't, hadn't done it, uh, but he didn't break any law. Well, he can coerce her because uh, oftentimes boys are influential and manipulative. Uh, he can coerce her into getting an abortion, even though she doesn't want one. Now, she may be 14. She may not be mature enough to raise a child, but at the same time, that we can't assume that that girl uh, is abortion choice. We can't assume that mm. she thinks abortion is uh, should be a good option, but she might be pressured into it because her parents won't won't uh, let her have the baby. Her boyfriend keeps saying, "You know, I'll love you more if you don't have that baby." I mean, how could we stay together if you have that baby? And he uses you know whatever manipulative tactics he can, and she has an abortion. Now, that woman is acting against her best interests because abortion culture has told her that she's more liberated with an abortion in that situation than by having the child. And yeah, so I, abortion I, culture uh, facilitates the exploitation of women because they're that much more disposable to irresponsible adolescent boys, not men, who love them and leave them. It's that much easier for them to do that for for boys who are a little a step closer to the casual sex mentality to treat women like property and like objects that they can dispose once they've had sex. Abortion makes that that much easier. 
Yeah, I find that uh, simply fascinating that so many women seem to think that this are allowed them to be put on the same level as men. I was like, no, it makes you more likely to be used by men instead. I mean, I think about, like, you mean, like, uh, I think today you've got the March for Women going on, which I, I'm quite sure we get far more coverage than the March for Life did. Even though it's but, a tenth of the size. Yeah, Small. but, I mean, you're, you're see women going on and doing the whole thing like, you know, like the topless marches and such thing that, yeah. like, all right, we're going to get noticed by these men and such thing. Where you are going to get noticed by the men, just not for the reasons you want to get noticed by them. A great deal of contemporary feminism has, for all intents and purposes, just gone off the rails and does not speak mm -hmm. for women broadly. It's more of a political movement than a social movement in that it represents this a certain socio-political ideology that doesn't really connect with most of society. Um, a lot of women, even, even self-proclaimed liberal and Democrat women, look at topless marches and say, what are they thinking? That, that'd be like a man, uh, my wife uses this illustration, that'd be like a man uh, protesting um, uh, the mistreatment of men by doing the dishes. Mm -hmm. I mean... It's fine to do the dishes. I do the dishes. I'm the primary dish doer in the house. But I, I understand that doing the dishes isn't exactly a clear message about how men need to be treated better in society. And taking your top off might get some, some uh, 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 media coverage. But it betrays uh, what most women tend to think of as feminine, which includes a tone of modesty, which in includes a tone of misery and trying to treat your, your empowerment not as the ability to have sex in any which way with any which person you want and as fully separable from pregnancy as, as conceivable, but a lot of women understand their sex like a gift that's a responsibility that they need to take care of, and their body is a gift and a responsibility that they need to take care of. And all these different elements play, they, they offer a certain social currency that if they misuse it, that they, they weaken and disempower themselves in society. And taking your top off in public, uh, a lot of women don't consider that empowering at all, but embarrassing and a, and a shame and, and a compromise that isn't giving women equal rights with men. All men can be topless and women can be topless. There is no way you can, you can convince me or convince normal people that a topless man and a topless woman have the equal sales power because men and women psychologically are programmed the same. No. Mm -hmm. The naked female form is a far more uh, powerful and persuasive force um, visually uh, for, for commercial purposes, for marital purposes, for relational purposes. Uh, even from a female. Even from a female. Women recognize this. When they're not indoctrinated into uh, lines from, say, second, third, fourth, or fifth wave feminism. I'm not even sure fourth and fifth wave feminism is a real thing, but some people believe in it. But these later waves of feminism, if you've been indoctrinated into it, you may think that, but most of the women who aren't really thinking that way, aren't indoctrinated into it, they recognize that that's, that's foolishness. That's that's compromising what you're trying to persuade people to. And people can't hear what you're saying because your top's off. You've got this message, but I'm sorry, you distracted me. If you want me to listen, here let's 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 not be trying to distract each other. Yeah. So what would you say the church should be saying 
since we only got a few minutes left, what do you think the church should be saying to young men and women today, especially who are dealing with, you know, the onslaught of puberty and having all these raging hormones in them? And wondering what, how, how do we do this? How do we handle this? Wow. Um, that's a big open question. I don't know that there's a single way to do it. Um, I think the church can help reinforce uh, that a, a culture of dignity, responsibility, integrity, honor. Uh, some of the some of the classic, even masculine virtues, I think, can be can be upheld so that uh, many women would uh, act more modest and carry themselves with more dignity and self-respect um, in ways that 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 pay off in less regret when they do get married later. I'm not talking about uh, women should conform to my John Ferrer's idea of what women should be like. I'm, I'm talking about women who at least out of self-interest recognize that that they have to live with the consequences of their decisions from teenagers that when they were kids, they have to live with that for the rest of their lives. And so how can we empower them to see the world with the sort of long-term uh, big picture perspective so that they don't have those big regrets when they're 30. And now they, they've got a series of, of, um, of uh, failed pregnancies because they had an abortion and had cervical damage in their abortion when they were a teenager. They don't have to worry about those regrets. And I'll, I don't know that there's a singular answer uh, to your question, but I know one mm -hmm. way that, that I found helpful to communicate this idea is uh, guys, girls, you don't want your wedding bed to be haunted. You don't want it to be haunted mm. by the ghosts of lovers past. Guys, you don't want to have to compete with every boyfriend she slept with in the past. Girls, you don't want to have to compete with every girlfriend he slept with in the past. Instead, understand that sex is a wonderful, beautiful, God-given gift. And if you try to open that package before Christmas, then it means less come Christmas time. And every other Christmas after it, it means a little less because this kind of thing, um, it tends to have residual consequences that could be in your favor if you want to, if, if you're willing, if you're mature enough, if you're courageous enough uh, to take God at his word. Since he made your body, he made society, and he knows uh, what's, what's going to give you the best trajectory for a fruitful, helpful marriage in the future, uh, or at least a healthy single life in the future. Here's some, some behaviors that, that we know statistically, we know from biblical, biblical prescriptions, and we know from modeling from families that have succeeded. You don't want to have to deal with those regrets. There's so much more that you, you can lay claim to if you have the courage to defy, to be countercultural with the trends now. Most of what you'll see on Netflix or Hulu or Amazon Prime or network television or on news sites or on social media or across the internet, most of the impressions you'll get through the unfiltered world of media are going to com communicate a different message. I'm communicating a countercultural message because I want you to live a better life than they did. I want you to have, to be able to reach goods and joy that they can't reach because you did it God's way. So mm -hmm. that, that haunted wedding bed makes a lot of sense to people. And, and suddenly their self-interest starts to kick in and they realize God is most glorified in me in a way that's also most dignifying, empowering to me. It's not an either or, it's a both and.
I can have mm-hmm. God's best interest in mind because I know he's got my best interest in mind in the in the bigger picture. <clears throat> yeah, one of the things that I try to encourage women also to can say, establish how much you're worth beforehand. If that guy wants to be with you, how much are you worth? Dinner and a movie or a few dates? How much are you worth? Maybe, maybe you're actually worth a lifetime commitment and you say, Guys, if you want this, you have to commit to me for life, and I will settle for nothing less. Because whenever you sleep with a guy, you are telling him how much you think you're worth. Mm. Yeah, it's, that's a good point. Uh, um, I don't know any formal statistics on it, but just speaking from experience, a lot of girls um, uh, struggle with a certain level of identity and self-value. And I'm not talking about mm-hmm. the simplistic 80s style self-esteem movement. I'm talking about women um, who draw a lot of their, their sense of who they are from how healthy and rewarding their relationships are. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But for a woman who has a distant dad or an overbearing mother, uh, oftentimes she's, she will struggle with an identity crisis and to help communicate to her that she's valuable, that she matters, that God sees her and adores her, that that she is worth more than she may think. Um, the, the weaker vessel uh, phrase in scripture, oftentimes we treat that as less valuable, but I think what's going on in that passage is that it's actually more valuable. It's a more delicate vessel. You use a delicate vessel for the priceless um uh, perfume for the expensive spices. You use a more delicate vessel for things that are more valuable. You don't use a delicate vessel for your feeding trough. You don't use a delicate vessel for your water bucket. That's what you use your coarse, rough, sturdy vessel for. And and I think the biblical imagery here is that a lot of guys uh, should be cultivating functional, practical strength so that they could be serviceable. They they have strength to lend. They want to know that their competence is useful to the family. Um, and that's that's kind of analogous to, say, a feeding trough or a water bucket, a wheelbarrow. Those are great. They're perfect. They're, you need them for a home. But they aren't suited to carry a delicate spice. They aren't suited to carry fine wine. You need a, a delicate vessel for that. And I think that's what the weaker vessel is referring to in scripture. And many women, when they, they hear that, when they hear how, how God views them, not as less than, but as, as distinct and beautiful and wonderful and, and with so much to contribute, when we can communicate that, we're helping to protect them from predatory males. Predatory mm-hmm. males can sniff out an insecure pretty girl from a mile away. Am I right? Mm-hmm. They, they can yep. see the way that she plays with her hair. They can see the way that she touches her neck or, or that insecure little laugh that she has. And they can detect weakness from, from a girl who doesn't know that she's loved because she doesn't know what healthy male love looks like from a father first. And predatory males can pick that out like a shark can smell an injured, uh, <clears throat> an injured fish. And, mm-hmm. and that's the kind of thing that, that we as a culture can help women see themselves in God's eyes. And then we can help those predatory males recognize, hey, you're making a beast of yourself. That isn't masculine. That's not even toxic masculinity. That's just toxic. That's bestial, not masculine. Don't bring us down. Don't make us look bad. Man up. And we men can hold other men accountable like that. 
but we can't mm-hmm. really expect the government to do it. And we can't necessarily expect, you know, teachers K through 12 to do it either. And we shouldn't shovel that off to, to church to do it either, even though they can do a great job reinforcing and helping. That's kind of the job of family and community first. So if we can help, help guys by modeling masculinity, uh, bless women by affirming their femininity, we're empowering them to have healthier, more traditional, godly marriages that, that give them access to some of the greater goods in life that uh, a licentious view of sex can't give them. Well, I'd like to thank you for coming on, Dr. Perea, but we've got to be wrapping things up here. Well, it's been so fun. Do you, have a, do you have a blog, website, and email way people can get in touch if they want to find out more? Uh, my blog is intelligentchristianfaith.com. Uh, mm-hmm. spelled out, no, no strange spellings. It's just intelligentchristianfaith.com. Uh, my uh, pro-life research archive is abortionhistorymuseum.com. Again, spelled out, no funny spellings, abortionhistorymuseum.com. Um, and they can reach me through the message boards there. I think I have contact information available on both of those. Uh, I encourage them mm-hmm. to go uh, read some more. Uh, the abortion issue is the most uh, pressing uh, human rights crime in world history, not just in modern history, but in world history. And it's the most devastating, most deadly act against fellow man ever. And we owe it to ourselves to get serious about this and to take a, a principled stand in favor of lives, because that's what God has entrusted us to do, to look after those, especially those who can't take care of themselves. I'm going to guess that's probably your final thoughts on the matter for today also, right? Sure enough. Well, Dr. Ferrer, I'd like to thank you for coming on, and I hope we'll see you back here again sometime, and we look forward to having your wife on later with someone the book comes it's out. It's been a pleasure, and I know Hillary looks forward to it, too. I'd like to remind everyone that next week we're going to have uh, Matthew Flanagan on. We're going to talk about abortion in New Zealand and see how this is going on around the world. But for now, I'm Nick Peters, and I'm signing off. <laughs>